The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, friends, let's uh, let's grab our seats again. Good morning and peace be with you. Please open your Bible to Paul's letter to the Galatian church, or churches. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. In your Bible, the large numbers on the pages are the chapter numbers. The small numbers on the pages are the verse numbers. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, reading verses 10 through 14. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. Now, if you've been paying attention to our printed schedule and reading along with us during the week, uh, you may have noticed that this morning's text ends in verse 14, where the scheduled text would have taken us all the way to verse 29, to the end of this chapter. Um, and quite frankly, that was my plan about all the way up till last night and this morning and realized that unless you wanted another hour plus sermon, uh, it'd be better if I broke it into two or at the very least take next week's passage with the following weeks. Um, and so there's no easy way to often split the Bible into little pieces like that, even as we're trying to digest it little by little. So this is not a an exact science, so just forgive my, uh, my inflexibility a little bit, and uh, I appreciate yours. So we're going to go from verse 10 to verse 14 in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to give you in by reading it, and then we'll pray and ask God for his help in our study. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful to you for your word. It is inspired, breathed out, your very word. It is infallible and always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. It is inerrant, contains no falsehood. It is the source of all truth. We affirm, Lord, with saints of old, that the Bible is our supreme authority. Because it is your word, O Lord, it rules over us 
It teaches, admonishes, corrects, reproves, encourages, comfort, lifts, and much more the soul of those who would read it with eyes to see and ears to hear. We are only guided this morning by your Spirit, not by human wisdom, not by craft or ingenuity. Lord, may we not be creative in our working of the text, but read your Word as it has been written, preserved, and handed down to us this very moment. We ask, God, that you would guide us this morning in our reading and study of your word, that our minds would be illumined and opened up to the meaning of the text, and that, God, we would, by the same Spirit whom you sent, be led in truth and obedience to this word, and our lives would be one that reflects the beauty and the value and the truth of the gospel and the power of Christ's work, his death, his resurrection, contained in small measure in this text and in all other passages. Lord, would you help me as I deliver your word? Lord, I stand here as a servant your servant, and we stand ready to receive, to obey. We ask for your help in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Galatians 3 has been cited by many scholars as one of the most difficult passages of the New Testament. And all of Paul's epistles... Romans 3 and 4, Galatians 3 and 4, along with Romans 9 and 10, are some of the most difficult passages that Paul has written. And it takes work for us to untangle some of the complex uh, realities to which Paul is speaking about here. Peter writes to his own audience and he commends the writings of Paul. He says, you should read Paul and, and read him as he is, not distorting him like others do. For Paul's writings is that of the scriptures. And yet even Peter concedes that sometimes Paul's hard to understand. That it's difficult to really work through all the logic and requires stamina. It requires study. It requires faith in the Spirit. I think, personally, Peter's thinking of Galatians chapter 3. I think the people he's writing to are still looking at Paul's writings and wondering, what does, what does this fully mean for me? Well, Galatians is further expanded upon in the book of Romans, and Romans is expanded upon in Galatians, or in 1 Corinthians, and Paul then writes to Timothy, a son in the faith, further about the same topic. So the issue before us this morning in our text, 
the issue of the law and the gospel is one that Paul spends his entire ministry speaking of because it is one of immense importance to the life of the believer and to churches that desire to be in accordance with the gospel of Christ. But questions will naturally arise, what do Christians do with the Old Testament? What are we to do with the law or the prophets? Debates would arise within the church about how Christians should understand the commands that God once gave to his people, but now seem to no longer be binding or in effect. In what sense is the law still valuable to Christians? Or in what sense, to put it another way, are Christians still obligated to the law if Christ has fulfilled the law? Well, the problem in Galatia is that men have come and said, the answer to that question is that you submit to the law just as Israel had done. You follow the commands of Moses. You become circumcised like Abraham and his descendants should be. And you fulfill the law by submitting yourself and doing what it commands. Yes, Christ gives you salvation through his death, and you can accept that by faith. But faith is not enough. Faith is not sufficient. You need the law, so the argument goes, in order to walk rightly before God. You must obey the law if you are to honor Christ's death. Well, the problem with that, Paul recognizes this instantly, is that once you submit yourself to the law, you put yourself at variance with the gospel. Because the law and the gospel, as far as Paul is concerned, are opposites. Now, Paul will be accused of being antinomian, which means against the law. Someone who wants to throw away the law. And Paul will defend himself on that charge that the law has its usefulness. The law has its place in the Christian life. The law is valuable to the Christian, necessary even to the Christian. But when it comes to justification, it is not by works of the law. When it comes to earning righteousness, it is impossible to do so through the law. So when Christians look to the Old Testament, look to the law of Moses, consider what we must do to earn God's righteousness. The answer from Paul and the apostles is that you cannot earn the righteousness of God. It must be given to you by faith in Christ alone. So what we have here is, in the next really several weeks, we'll look at a distinction between the law and the gospel. So Paul elsewhere in other parts of scriptures will try to reconcile how the law and the gospel work together. Here in Galatia, he is not trying to reconcile the law and the gospel. He is repudiating the law for the gospel. So we don't want to try and soften Paul's approach to the gospel or to the law here. We'll do so elsewhere. Paul makes clear that there is a distinction between the law and the gospel. And this isn't just relevant to the first century Christians who are comprised mostly of Jews and more Gentiles increasing. And it's not just relevant only to those who 
are interested in theological questions like how the law impacts our faith. But it is relevant to Christians today, every Christian today, because it is through the law that we understand that righteousness comes from Christ and not the law. This is why Paul would say earlier that it is through the law that we must die to the law that we may be made alive with God. So there's a distinction in our passage of the law in the gospel, and this distinction would be essential in understanding how Christians are to really interpret the Bible and to view the finished work of Christ. Make no mistake, what's happening here in Galatians it is a battle for the Bible itself. There's a debate about how Christians should read, approach, understand, and even submit themselves to the Bible. And so if we don't have a law-gospel distinction in our understanding of the Bible, and particularly of the New Testament, then we'll miss what Paul is trying to get us to understand about how we should look at the Old Testament and apply it to our own lives. And when we miss that point, we'll miss the point of the text itself. We'll begin to misapply the Bible in ways that it was not meant to be applied, and therefore damage ourselves. When seen through this lens, the gospel law distinction, two ways of living are presented before us. One by the law, and one by the gospel. But only one of these ways is truly able to save. There is only really one path to life. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 9, and our text in verses 10 through 14 says essentially the same thing. The point that's made is virtually the same, except what verses 1 through 9 states positively, our passage states negatively. Namely, in the first part of chapter 3, Paul makes the case that faith justifies. The case that he makes in verses 10 through 14 is that the law condemns. That's the case put positively. What justifies? Faith justifies. Put negatively, the law condemns. It does not justify. Only faith in Christ can. And so we should take, honestly, these first 14 verses of chapter 3 together to understand this part of Paul's argument. That as he goes to the Galatian church to help them fight this error, this heresy that has crept up among them, that they are beginning to believe and by which they are beginning to leave and abandon the gospel. He says that you need to understand that if you submit yourself to a law that is unable to save and justify, you put yourself under the condemnation of God unless you turn to Christ by faith through which righteousness can only be achieved. So two ways are presented before us to live. This is as true for Christians today as it is for any unbelieving <coughs> brothers or sisters who may be here. The two paths of living are presented before us, law or gospel. And so Paul writes to those who would choose to live under the law. 
to those who choose to live under the law, as he places, it says it in other ways, you must realize two things from the text. First, the result of the law, and secondly, the content of the law. If you want to place yourself under the commands of the law and claim submission and obedience to them as means for justification, you must understand and realize the result of doing so and the content of the law under which you would place yourself. Consider the first. On the path of living, deemed law, realize that the result of the law places you under a curse. That's what it says in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What does it mean to be cursed? Well, we know that there is a contrast happening here. We mentioned those earlier in the first nine verses, and those contrasts still control the argument in Paul's mind here. The contrast, of course, is spirit and flesh, law and faith. And so if you turn from faith to the law, you live according to the flesh and not by the spirit. So to do the works of the law and to be placed under a curse means ultimately that you live without the spirit, which is opposed to the law and the flesh. So to be cursed means that you do not have the spirit. And if to not have the spirit, it means you are under condemnation. To do the law places you under the curse of the law. How so? Well, he quotes from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. 27 and 28 chapters in Deuteronomy are really about all the blessings and the cursing of the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, Moses would have the tribes of Israel split and speak to one another the blessings and the cursing of the law, the promises and the blessings of when it's fulfilled and the curses or the punishments, the judgments of when it is not. To remind them that this covenant, this Mosaic covenant in which they enter into before God, that he would be their God and they would be his people, meant that conditioned upon the law would be the promise of blessing or the curse of judgment. And so the curse here under which those who would place themselves, if they go to the law for their righteousness, is that when they fail to obey it, they come under condemnation of God. Paul knew this passage well. He would be lashed 39 times, several instances in his own ministry. And it was the regulation at the time that as the lashings were being given across the back of the punished, the curses of the law would be read aloud. So several times during Paul's own ministry would he hear this verse, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul makes the statement here that anyone who relies on works of the law, who submits themselves by external means of righteousness, places themselves under the curse of the law. Because everyone who does the law or does not abide by the law and do them, fulfill them, is cursed. 
What's assumed here is that man is unable to keep the law. There is an inherent inability for man to obey perfectly the commands of God. God's righteous, perfect, morally upright commands are impossible for sinful men to completely and perfectly fulfill. Really, this speaks to not simply man's inability to keep the law, but to the law's nature as ultimately unfulfillable, at least as far as sinners like ourselves would go. So Paul's here is assuming, and he's perfectly safe in assuming this, as it was accepted well within rabbinic thought at the time, that man cannot keep the law perfectly. The law testifies to this very fact. That's why it contains the sacrificial system. You will break the law, God says. And so in order not to receive the condemnation and the curse that the law will bring on your head, go to the temple, to the tabernacle, to the tent, and give offering, sacrifice. And so the law speaks and attests to its own truth, that it cannot be kept or fulfilled by man. And yet the curse of the law remains. For those who fail to keep the law must recognize that they are under the curse of God. To them, the law is unfulfillable. They cannot find within themselves their natural ability to obey every aspect of the law. In fact, we must recognize that the law is to be taken as a unit, as a whole. You may fulfill one aspect of the law, but no one can ever fulfill every aspect of the law. You break the law in one place, you are guilty of breaking the law in every place. And so the law stands to condemn anyone who is under it. Of course, Jesus himself would become a man born under the law. He submits himself to the same rubric, same standard of judgment. He places himself under the same blessing and curse conditions that God placed upon Israel in covenant. And this covenant law is unable to those who are sinfully corrupted, as we are, to save us. But for Christ, who is not corrupted by sin, because he is God in the flesh, alone would be able to fulfill the law. So Paul here is going to the curses of the law in Deuteronomy 27 to realize that if you place yourself under the law, if you seek to give yourself to the commandments of the law, to justify yourself, to keep yourself righteous before God, you will fall short and you will be condemned. So the result of the law is a curse. He goes further. Now, verse 11, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This is a quote from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. He quotes this elsewhere, Romans 1.16, for instance. He says, the righteous shall live by faith, verse 12, but the law is not of faith. For, rather, he quotes again, the one who does them shall live by them. This is a quote from Leviticus 18, verse 5. 
where all the religious and ceremonial aspects of the law would be discharged. So the result of the law, Paul says in verse 10, is to be placed under a curse. But the content of the law is work and not faith. The very essence of the law, though graciously given to Israel in the Old Covenant, is not one ultimately of faith, but of works. He says very clearly here, the law is not of faith. It does not consist of faith. It demands obedience. It demands action. It demands performance. So he quotes here from Habakkuk 2.4 to say, the righteous shall live by faith. Or to put it another way, those who are righteous will live, that is, have eternal life by their faith. Once you recognize, this follows from verse 10, that you and I are unable to keep God's standards and laws perfectly, what is our chance to not be condemned? Well, you must turn to God by faith. And so the prophet Habakkuk says that the righteous then, those who would have their hope of righteousness fixed in God, must turn not to the law, but to faith. So the righteous live by faith and not by works of the law. And so the problem is this. The law is not of faith. The content and the character of the law does not consist of faith, but works. It demands obedience. It demands perfection. It demands your performance. But no one can keep the law, and so they are without life by their works. The very fact of even attempting to obey the law condemns you as you fall short, and you fall short of life. Despite your efforts... To obtain it, you fall short of it. Not only this, are they excluded from life because their own doing of the law is insufficient, but they are likewise excluded from life because of their lack of faith, the very thing which alone could truly grant them righteousness. If the prophet says, those who are righteous shall live by faith, this is in juxtaposition to the law which is unable to save, because it cannot be obeyed perfectly. Now, even in the Old Covenant, such a statement would not have been unacceptable. For the law, we'll see, is meant to point believers to faith, to trust in the promises of God, to accept God's gracious work in the accepting of sacrifices within the temple, to trust in the promises of God, to be their God, to sustain them, to equip them, to deliver them, as he has always done and promised he will always do. So let me give you a summary so far of the first path to living that Paul says is not sufficient. He says, if you think that by doing the law, either one part or the whole, it doesn't matter, if you think that doing the law will lead you to life, you are sorely mistaken. For the law requires a perfect doing. But because no one can fulfill the law perfectly, we all fall under its curse. And the curse of the law is death, judgment, condemnation. The only true path to life that is not a dead end is faith. 
That's what the prophet Habakkuk says. Not the law. So by choosing the law and its various commands, you place yourself under the curse of God's judgment. That's his argument. Now a question may arise in your mind. Well, as far as I know, I'm not attempting to live by the Mosaic Code. I am a Gentile after all and not a Jew. And so are Gentiles exempt from the curse of the law? They don't have the law. Are they under its curse? Are they sort of neutral, able to obey and fulfill God's law without his law, as it were? Are they exempt from the curse that the law brings? Well, Paul's answer to this is very clearly no, although he doesn't really directly answer it here. But listen from Romans chapter 2. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, but I'll read it as well. Romans 2, verse 12 through 16. Really, in the first two chapters of the book of Romans, he shows that the Gentiles, even though they do not have the law, are still under the wrath of God. Unless the Jews think that they are exempt in chapters 3, he also shows that they are condemned. But Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now this isn't a contradiction here. This is the same thing that he quotes in Leviticus 18.5 that says the one who does the law shall live by them, but no one can do the law. Therefore, no one shall live. He goes on, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, Gentiles do not get off the hook because they say, I don't have the law. I don't live under the law. How then can I be under the curse of the law if I'm not submitting myself to Moses' law? But Paul says, you do live by the law. If you think murdering is evil or wrong, stealing is evil or wrong, if you seek to honor those in positions above you, or to help those who are innocent or vulnerable below you, if you have any moral standing, you recognize there's an inherent law written on your heart. Your own conscience bears witness to that truth. You become a law to yourself. This law is written on your heart by God. And so you will stand before God, condemned by the same failure to live up to the exact righteous standards of the law written on your heart, as any Jew would stand before God according to the righteous standards written in the law of Moses. So are Gentiles exempt from the curse the law brings? No. Even without the law, they stand condemned. That's you and I and everyone in the world. In fact, he'll go on to say in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there are two ways to live. According to the law, which places you under the curse if you do not obey them perfectly, which is not consistent of faith, 
or by faith, which alone the righteous may live. These two ways to live are opposed to one another. And friends, I think many of us sometimes find ourselves straddling the line between the two, trying to hold on to one or the other, where and when we can, deceiving ourselves that we are completely saved and kept by faith, and yet our works still somehow bring us credit. This is not to pit faith against works, but the gospel against the law. At the end, what justifies us? Faith. At the end of the day, what keeps us? Faith. At the end of the day, where is our righteousness from? Christ. And so we see that there is only one real path to life. And so we saw then under the path of the law that the result would be a curse because the content of the law is not of faith but of work. We must ultimately come to the end of the law, who is Christ. Because how then is anyone to ever inherit the blessing that is promised by God to Abraham if they are under a curse, if they cannot obey the commandments that God gave to Abraham and to Moses? Paul's answer is and has been, by faith in him, Christ, who alone could fulfill the righteous requirement of the law as Paul puts it in 8.4, Romans 8.4. By faith in him who alone could fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and who satisfies the just penalty of God's wrath for our unrighteousness by taking on the death of our sin that our sins have earned us. This is Christ, who is the Son of God. Faith in Christ is the only means by which we are able to live righteously before God, that we are justified before God. This means that the person who perfectly obeyed the law would also suffer the judgment of God as if he hadn't. Can you sense the contradiction there? That the one who comes to perfectly obey the law and fulfills it also suffers as if he had not. But this is what Christ had done. This is why Paul goes into verse 13 and speaks of Christ's curse-bearing work. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How did he become a curse? For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ redeems us by the curse of the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. In what sense was Jesus cursed? In his death. He was hung on a tree. This was the penalty of those who were criminals, who broke God's law, and the hanging of a tree showed that they were in violation against God's command and outside of the covenant. This was to bear the curse of God. Yet, by subjecting himself to the nature of this kind of death, publicly crucified, shameful in its nature, he demonstrated this wonderful, willful submission to the redemptive plan of God to suffer wrath against sin and so ransom us by his own life and blood 
those who were condemned. This was the eternal purposes of God realized in Christ Jesus. Paul says, or Peter says in Acts chapter 2 as he preaches after Pentecost, that it was to the, the knowledge of God, the foreknowledge of God, who planned to put Christ to death. Or in Revelation 13, 8, that we see the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. So it always has been God's redemptive plan to send Christ into the world to become like us, become solidarity with us under the law that he might both perfectly fulfill it and suffer the wrath of unrighteousness for those who cannot. So the law, it ends in Christ. It, it terminates in Christ. Not only in the sense that it's fulfilled in Christ, but also in the sense that in Christ we see the end of the terror of the law, the trappings of the law, that we no longer look within ourselves or our obedience to try to obey the law, but as the law has always taught us to do, looking by faith to God's mercy. And so though the law was and still is very valuable and precious to God's people as a revelation of God's moral character, Christ's death on the cross brings with it an end to the law as law covenant. And it replaces the law with a new covenant in which the promised blessings of life and the Spirit are freely bestowed upon any and all who would by faith seek such things. That's what it says in verse 14, that Christ would become a curse in order to redeem us from the curse, verse 14, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham, the Spirit, the joy, the inheritance, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ's death brings with it the forgiveness of the curse of the law and a new law, a new covenant in which all the promises of life and the spirit are granted to us by faith to anyone who would seek such things by faith. So Paul's argument leads us to Christ. Next week, as we look at the usefulness of the law, we'll see more clearly just how the law does this. But for now, I want to end with three exhortations about what we should do with this law-gospel distinction that Paul puts forward. How we can learn from it and what it does for us. Firstly, this law-gospel hermeneutic, which is the way we read the Bible, would free us from the bondage of sin and fear. The law gospel hermeneutic frees us from the bondage of sin and fear. Many of us are tempted to try to earn or keep our salvation, our favor, or our credit with God. We think that because we are righteous enough, moral enough, even the commands of the New Testament can be obeyed well enough that we somehow earn and curry favor with God. Now, this doesn't mean that God responds indifferently to our sin if we're Christians. Our sin still angers the Lord. It's offensive to the Lord. We are still obligated to keep His commands, in many senses, those of the New Testament. 
but this means that we are free from the kind of bondage sin had placed us under and the fear of condemnation that we are under when we give ourselves to the law. We walk in freedom of the truth. Paul will say later in chapter 5 of this same book, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Every man who accepts circumcision is he that is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, he says, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So the warning is clear here. Without the law-gospel distinction that leads us to embrace the true path of living by faith, we will walk continually in the same bondage of sin, the same trap of fear that all those who would walk in the law would do. And so if we are to walk free from such bondage, we must turn to the gospel, which puts an end to the law and leads us to righteousness by faith alone. The second exhortation is that the law gospel hermeneutic protects us from the error of legalism. It keeps us from wandering into the same error the Galatian churches have found themselves in in our letter. That if we understand that the gospel does something to the law that frees us from it and no longer puts its dominion over us, we are able to protect ourselves from the error of legalism that says without obedience to certain commands, we are still condemned. But the law runs contrary to such thoughts. Legalism says that if you do not obey, you do not earn salvation, or you do not receive God's favor. Your piousness and your works must count for something. It's a rigid forming to the laws, the rules and regulations which are to govern all of life. But that is a trap that the Pharisees wandered into and that those who place themselves under the law, even if they call themselves Christians, will continue to walk into. But the law gospel hermeneutic will protect us from that kind of error. That is, we can say, the Spirit leads us in the truth of His Word, which guides us in our worship and our lives. But we must be careful not to erect laws legalism around us that prevents us from walking in that freedom. That is, what we must do or say to be a better Christian. What we must wear to church, the kind of music we must listen to, the kinds of podcasts we must listen to, the people we must follow, the holidays we practice or don't. Legalism creeps in from all kinds, but a law-gospel distinction will help us understand that that kind of stuff is law. And the gospel puts an end to it. We must be careful, then, about how we bind the consciences of men. When Scripture tells us what we must do, we obey it. But when men put on the conscience a must or an ought, which is not supported by Scripture, we must reject it. A law-gospel hermeneutic protects us from the error of legalism. And lastly, the law-gospel hermeneutic enables us to live consistently in light of grace. That is, how are we ultimately supposed to live in that freedom and the grace we receive in Christ? 
It is if we understand that we have been set free from the law and we live now under grace. That's the language Paul uses. We are no longer under law, but under grace. We have a new covenant. And with this new covenant, a new law, the law of grace. In fact, he'll say later, again in Galatians 4 and 5, that we are to obey and fulfill the law of Christ. And so this means that we have a new covenant, which gives us a new command, and we take the law of Moses in the Old Testament, and we do something different with it. But we do not submit ourselves to it as law. For the law gospel hermeneutic enables us to live consistently in light of grace. And so we look, for instance, to the Old Covenant to guide us, to teach us, to make us wise, to speak and to point us to Christ. But what it cannot do is tell us that we must obey it for righteousness' sake. The law gospel hermeneutic enables us to live consistently in light of grace. And so, friends, if you are here this morning and you are under Christ, then you are exhorted to live under Christ and not under the law. You have been set free from the bondage of sin and fear. You are free from the error of legalism, chaining yourselves to rules of do's and don'ts to gain favor with God. You are able to live consistently in the light of grace because you live under Christ and not the law who gives grace to you. But if you are not under Christ, if you have not looked to Christ, as Paul says in verse 13, one who has redeemed you from the curse of condemnation over you, then know that you stand condemned whether you obey the law or not. That it is not in your ability to fulfill the law ever perfectly that you stand condemned as fallen short of God's glory and standard and you must look outside of yourself to Christ for righteousness. This is Paul's whole thought, that if you were to seek righteousness, you seek it in Christ. It cannot be found in the law. The law does many things, but it cannot justify. It is the righteous who live by faith. And so friends, you are presented now with two ways to live. The first, that of the law, is under your own strength and righteousness. The second is that of Christ's, his fulfillment of the law, his righteousness, and it's your freedom. You stand condemned and under the curse of God by walking under the law, but redeemed and justified before God under faith. The path you choose is the most important decision that you and I will make in our lives. It is the decision of our lives. And so I must implore you, friend, choose life. Choose the path of faith. Christian, as Peter would tell us, confirm your calling and election. Examine your own heart to see, indeed, if you are straddling the line between faith and law. And place yourself fully, completely, and assuredly on the path of faith. For there is faith and righteousness which leads to justification in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the law, which does point us to Christ. But we thank you for Christ, who fulfills the law, who redeems us from the curse that we all stand under because of the law. The law of Moses and the law written on our hearts. We are thankful, Lord, for the incarnation of Christ, his becoming like us, his being born under the law, his perfect obedience and fulfillment of the law, 
and his atoning sacrifice for our sin upon the cross. Your word says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we would become the righteousness of God. That he became a curse for us, that we might be redeemed from the curse by hanging on a tree. Lord, we ask, God, that the work of Jesus would be seen in our eyes as the redeeming, forgiving, atoning work, and not as the foolish work that the world claims it is. Let us walk clearly and squarely on the path of life, so that in Christ we would inherit and receive the blessing of Abraham, receive the promised spirit through faith, that we may walk faithfully and humbly before you, in obedience to the command and the call of Christ, and that all the promises of your word would be true for us, and that we would experience great joy and satisfaction in knowing that our sins are forgiven, our curse is lifted, we have been redeemed, and the favor we now receive we have not earned, but was earned for us by the perfect obedience of your son Jesus and the sacrificial death he offers on our behalf. We love you, Lord, we pray now in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Let me hide myself.